It's a beautiful day in Washington. It's in the 70s. I'm looking out my window at people jogging, uh, but it's bittersweet because, as everyone on this call knows, uh, the entire world continues to confront this COVID-19 crisis. And uh, this is the fourth installment of our private Wilson policy briefs. I've got the title now. Wilson policy briefs on COVID-19, and each week we're inviting experts to help the extended Wilson family, that's all of you on this line, make sense of this pandemic and how different regions are corresponding to it. I just want to mention that on the line now, so far as I can tell from the attendance list, we have three members uh, of our board, Thelma Duggan, David Jacobson, and Drew Maloney, who did a, a, a star turn last week uh, questioning Larry Lindsay, for those who were on the call. We have two former trustees, and one of them is our former chairman, Ambassador Joseph Gildenhorn, and his wife, Alma, and another is Ambassador Chuck Cobb. We have numerous members of our Global Advisory Council. Our speaker, as I'll mention in a minute, is the co-chairman of it, and numerous members of our cabinet and uh, our council. Uh, so uh, you're all highly pedigreed, and this briefing won't disappoint you, I am sure. Um, just a few more comments. Europe is home to seven out of ten uh, countries with the highest number of deaths from COVID-19. The continent now has nearly 700,000 confirmed cases and around 50,000 deaths. Uh, particularly in Italy and Spain, everyone knows this, the disease has taken a devastating toll, uh, partly because of older populations and also because of overstretched uh, healthcare systems. Not only is it shocking how many have caught the virus, but who has caught it? And certainly one, one person I'm sure our speaker will address is uh, the current Prime Minister of, of the UK, Boris Johnson. Uh, who is still in hospital. Uh, to offer his perspective on how Europe is handling the pandemic and coping with the tragic loss of life it has caused, we are joined by Sir John Scarlett, uh, a dear, dear personal friend, a dear friend of, of so many on the call, and the co-chair of our Global Advisory Council. As most of you know, John was chief of the British Secret Intelligence Service, or MI6, uh, from 2004 to 2009, after serving there for more than 20 years, he was appointed chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee in the Cabinet Office in 2001 and has since been appointed a member of the State Honors Committee by the Cabinet Office. Uh, his roles uh, now include chairman of the Strategic Advisory Council at Statoil ASA and senior advisor at Morgan Stanley, in addition to his most important role chairing the Global Advisory Council of the Wilson Center. Uh, please note, and those who have been on the, on the call before know this, that uh, the first portion of this conversation will be recorded. It will be followed by an off-the-record Q&A segment, uh, which will be managed by our very own uh, Nora Bodner. Uh, please join me in welcoming Sir John Scarlett, who will speak for about 15 minutes, uh, take a few questions from me, and then we will open the floor. So if you want to ask a question, please email Nora Bodner. I think that is the protocol. If I'm wrong with somebody, please speak up, but email Nora Bodner. This conversation will go until uh, 3 o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time, or East, yeah, Eastern Daylight Time. It is spring, it seems. Okay, uh, thank you to all. Uh, over to you, Sir John. Uh, Jane, uh, thank you uh, very much. 
and I hope that I'm completely audible on this call. Um, and now, first of all, I want to begin by making clear that this is a commentary um, <clears throat> on Europe, which means the European Union, 27 countries, but of course it also means uh, the UK. And by, by way of quick introduction, I'm intending to cover the following issues. The scale of the impact of COVID-19, health, economic and social on Europe. The reactions from different countries. The prospects and potential for exit strategies uh, across the Union and uh, the UK. The role of the EU itself, the European Union, and how this has balanced against that of the nation state. The implications for the future of the EU its impact for the, uh, Europe's regional position and the impact for Europe's international relations. Um, <clears throat> now, as of this morning, the scale of the crisis. As of this morning, the number of deaths and uh, confirmed cases from COVID-19 in major European countries stands as follows. Just a, a few selected ones, of course. Um, in Italy, the number of cases is over 135,000. In Germany, it's over 107,000, nearly towards 108,000. In the UK, it's um, 56,000. The number of deaths, as you mentioned, Jane, um, over 17,000 in Italy, um, over 14,000 in Spain, over 6,000 in the UK, and over 2,000 in Germany, and I'll come back to that. Now, there has been some suggestion that the growth rate in cases has, been, or has begun to decline, and this has led to talk of potential exit strategies from the lockdown that most countries are currently in. That talk's a bit more hesitant, actually, in the last day or two. Italy was the first country to go into lockdown on the 10th of March. France went on 17 March. UK began more slowly and gradually, which is why we look lower as an overall total, but the deaths are now running at a high rate. Germany has a large number of cases, but many fewer deaths, 1.4% of the total as against 12% in Italy. The German health system has been shown to be much better equipped and efficient than elsewhere. That's the basic deaths and cases. Now, the economic impact, of course, is already very serious. The projected decline in GDP for 2020, just being selective, uh, is in France, minus 4.8% GDP decline. In Italy, minus 5.8% decline. In the UK, minus 5.1%. And today, the Banque de France um, issued uh, figures for the first quarter of 2020, uh, minus 6% decline in GDP. That is the worst figure since 1945. Now, to make maybe this more explicable, if I quote Purchasing Managers Index PMI statistics, the decline from February to March was France, uh, during March in other words, um, France <clears throat> 52, 53 rather to 27 as a score, Germany 53 to 32 and UK, 53 uh, to 35. Those figures are rounded up or down. Now, in the UK, 
April is expected to be much worse than March. During March, Italy recorded the fastest contraction in new business on record. The Eurozone as a whole goes from 52 to 30, the lowest total since the creation of the Euro. And a reminder, anything under this index below 50 means decline in services, decline in services and manufacturing. Another way of showing impact is to illustrate the loss of jobs for individual Europeans. In March, in Spain, unemployment claims rose over 300,000, the highest monthly increase on record. In the UK, in the last two weeks of March, just under 1 million people applied for universal credit. The normal figure for two weeks will be one-tenth of this. Respected economic assessment has just predicted that by the end of May, the unemployment rate, um, unless we end the lockdown, uh, will be around 21%, a five-fold increase from now. In Austria, unemployment is predicted to be the highest since 1946. The 1940s keeps on coming up. Political and social reactions. In many respects, these are similar across national boundaries, but every country has its own particular response. Social isolation within cities, often in cramped apartments, is especially stressful. Uh, in, this applies in northern Italy, of course, in Madrid, Barcelona, and Spain, and London. Closure of schools, consequent homeworking, the cancellation of summer exams, even the back, unbelievably, in France, is hugely stressful. Italy has the big division between north and south. The south is poorer and has been more resistant to lockdown, with more cases of social violence and unrest. Across Italy, there is strong anxiety about loss of jobs. In France, there are complaints and criticism of the government, but interestingly, less worry about job losses. Unemployment in France is high anyway, but people in, who are in work feel greater job security. That's the way the economy works. Interview of the weekend, the finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, commented, I quote, La France est un état solide, those quotes. There is a high level of acceptance of the lockdown. Polling still shows strong criticism of French government policy, but ratings for President Macron as the national leader have gone up. And the same is true for Chancellor Merkel. In the UK, enforcement has been less strict than France or Spain, for example. But the, become, but the government is becoming increasingly nervous as young people in the cities in particular are not following their advice. It is too early to predict the political consequences for governments and leaders more generally. Every country is different. Uh, Spain and Italy have potentially unstable coalitions. The British government has a big majority but is under pressure as you mentioned already, the Prime Minister's condition, and of course, importantly also, there is a new and quite different leader of the Labour Party. Now, I mentioned exit strategies, and quickly on this, across Europe, there's a growing awareness of the potential economic consequences of the lockdown for individual families and livelihoods. So there is increasing talk of exit strategies, and with Austria, Denmark, Czech Republic leading the way. In France, media reports task forces now in place 
um, to consider all scenarios on the table around potential exit strategies. But that said, there are clear instructions from the Prime Minister, no public comment on easing the lockdown. Obviously, that brings the risk that public discipline will begin to break down. The UK is similar. There is reporting of increasing concern in the Treasury of the economic consequences of the shutdown and more discussion of exit strategies. This will be difficult to achieve without a much higher level of testing than we've managed so far in the UK. Once we are through the Easter break and we return to home working and homeschooling, I, as a personal view, expect frustra- frustration amongst people generally to become much more visible. Now, some comments on the European Union and the position of member states. COVID-19 has presented an unanticipated and unprecedented test for the European Union. We have to remember that the EU is a unique entity. It has its own balance between the Union and nation states. There is a lot of rhetoric around the future of the EU as a single global force. This crisis is something of a reality check. It reminds us that key areas of decision-making are a national, not a European responsibility. Crucially, they include health services, an economic and fiscal policy, state lending to companies, and employment. Now, there are EU restrictions on these economic powers, but they can be relaxed in an emergency. It is, after all, governments that take the risk on public debt. Now, when the crisis broke in early to mid-March, initial instinct across the EU was to protect immediate national interest. This is symbolised by export controls on medical products and the imposition of national border controls within the Schengen area. And as you know, free movement within Schengen is an enormous point of pride for the EU. These controls now apply to every country, albeit for different periods, including Germany and France. In late February, Italy asked the EU Commission to activate the civil protection mechanism across the EU, seeking medical equipment such as masks. Not one member state responded positively. Nine EU countries, including France, Italy, Spain and Portugal, signed a letter calling for a common EU bond to facilitate borrowing and financing across the Union. This has become known as the Corona bond, but it goes back the Eurobond dispute between North and South in the EU, in the EU uh, from the Eurozone crisis back in 2012. Germany and the Netherlands in particular have been firmly opposed to the mutualising of Eurozone debt. There are interesting echoes, I am bound to say to this audience, of the US in the 1790s, Hamilton and Jefferson and all that. Now these early developments that I've just mentioned have provoked a very negative reaction in Italy. Last week in the German media, the Prime Minister Italy, Giuseppe Conte, said, if we are, or wrote, if we are a union, now is the time to prove it. And the former interior minister, the controversial um, leader of the League, Matteo Salvini, said in late March, this meant the EU, is a den of snakes and jackals. First, we defeat the virus. Then remember Europe, and if necessary, we say goodbye. 
Just looking at the polling, in late March, the poll saw trust in the EU and Italy down from 34% to 25%. 72% said the EU had not contributed at all to the crisis response. Jacques Delors, totemic EU figure, president of the Commission 1985-95, has said, the climate that seems to hover over the heads of state and government and the lack of European solidarity pose a mortal danger to the European Union. And that's been much quoted. There are many other examples of quotes and um, unease. Now, in reality, the EU has initiated supportive projects joint procurement of medical equipment and research. Rules restricting state aid and budget deficits have been relaxed. Germany and France are now providing medical support, for example, to Italy. Other broader measures are now being agreed, including loans to member states, short-term working schemes, and so on. And the president of the Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, has talked about a Marshall Plan for Europe, although she hasn't given much detail. Now, in Germany, opposition among economists to a eurobond has been declining, but the CDU majority and it seems the Chancellor remain opposed, and this was reflected in the failure to reach agreement um, when finance ministers met yesterday, and it's worth mentioning they met for 16 hours and only ended their meeting at 8 a.m. this morning. And this was a failure to agree on a lending initiative which carried limitations and conditions, i.e. to avoid mutualisation of debt. And Italy very much on one side, Netherlands, Austria, Sweden, Denmark on the other, Germany and France compromising in the middle. Now all these pressures were highlighted last week, I noticed, in the Washington Post in a report which was set against or quoted the background from Brexit, the migration crisis, the Eurozone crisis, and the growth of autocratic governments in the East, Hungary in particular, and how this crisis now was placing, according to the Post, the future of Europe on the line. Now, this may indeed be the biggest test yet for the EU. This is my comment. The North-South divide on economic economic policy is indeed profound. Now, the rhetoric about future European unity, such as strategic autonomy and so on, can be far from reality or hard to explain. But at the same time, it is easy to underestimate the resilience of the Union and the commitment of member states and electorates to membership. I have seen this over many years. A persistent tendency, particularly in the US and the UK, to underestimate this commitment. If I can move towards regional and international uh, context. As this commentary, I think, demonstrates, our immediate focus is on the tensions now within Europe and the sheer scale of the challenge facing individual uh, governments. There is, maybe because of that, a risk that not enough attention will be paid to development in Europe's immediate region and the wider international scene. Regarding the region, are we thinking deeply enough about North Africa, the Levant and the Gulf? As of this morning, 20 COVID-19 cases and one death have been registered in Libya. 
In Syria, there are 19 cases and two deaths. In the Yemen, there are zero cases and zero deaths. Really? Military conflict and government breakdown in Libya inevitably means there is no capacity to assess, let alone control, the spread of the, of the virus. In effect, the same applies to Syria, with its hundreds of thousands of refugees in the northwest and by the Turkish border, and camps for IS, Islamic State prisoners and families in the northeast. The risk of spillover to Turkey is obvious. Our confirmed cases in Turkey are now rising faster than anywhere globally, and there are still only limited restrictions in in place. And if I may just mention quickly the Sahel, which is a, has been a constant source of migration uh, through Libya into Italy and then more widely into Europe in recent years. Uh, 46 um, deaths have been registered from coronavirus across the Sahel. In 2020, in Burkina Faso, just this year, a hundred health facilities have been closed because of Islamist unrest. That, on its own, is a reminder that terrorism has by no means gone away. Russia poses a quite different regional um, um, issue. Now, Russia's relations within the EU and with the UK vary from country to country. But President Putin has announced to the FT, uh, Financial Times of all places, that the liberal order has become obsolete. That was an interview last July. Russian activity on the social media uh, related or identified as related to COVID-19 is placing the blame on the Pentagon, on NATO, on ruling elites, and on, you'll be reassured to hear, U.S. global hegemony. Now, finally, uh, brief comments on the international context. Um, moving beyond the region, I would comment on China and the U.S. China is working hard to reinforce its established relationship within Europe, relationships within Europe, uh, given the potential reputational cost from the outbreak in Wuhan. Medical deliveries to Italy and Serbia, a candidate member for the EU, have received much publicity. In Italy, they are seen to be in contrast with the inaction from Brussels. At the same time, there is widespread scepticism about China across Europe. As a rather good quote from a former French ambassador to Beijing remarks, quotes, it is difficult to believe that in a country of 1.4 billion inhabitants, where 200 to 300 million people have been confined, there have only been a few more than 3,000 deaths. Close quotes. For the moment, the Elysee is alert to the need not to provoke Beijing, given the immediate priority to secure protection masks. That said, the debate about China in Europe is much more restrained than in the US. There is very limited support across the continent, including the UK, for commentary on the Chinese virus. I'm confident this will change over time. 
even if current Chinese statistics turn out to be broadly correct about the current situation there, and this, of course, is not certain. There are so many questions to answer about the Wuhan outbreak and the initial instinct to cover it up. Finally, finally, a brief word on the U.S., if I may. As the crisis develops, we see increasing debate about the need for an international, globalized, and coordinated response to the crisis. Since World War II, Europe has looked to the U.S. for such leadership. Whether right or wrong, there is more universal perception that such leadership is not currently available. For understandable reasons, U.S. focus is on its own enormous challenge. One's own country comes, I quote, first, close quotes. As I have tried to point out, many would argue the same is currently true for Europe, not just the EU. Europe badly needs to find its own sense of direction. I'll finish there. John, uh, that was a tour de force, uh, an exceptionally good presentation of uh, a lot of uh, depressing facts. And I was trying to think what liquor, maybe it's Pim's Cups, or certainly my, my drink of choice is tequila, we should be sharing virtually among us listening to the call just to be able to uh, function for the next uh, 30 minutes. But it could not have been a more complete presentation. Let me ask you a few questions, and I know Nora is collecting questions from others on the phone. Please email your questions to Nora Bodner. I think everyone has her email. First, uh, focused on the UK. You did mention Boris Johnson, and the reports are, you know, at least not, not getting worse. But what, just asking about the UK and continuity of government, what happens uh, should, he die, should he become totally incapacitated or die? Uh, how does the government continue? Right. Well, for, the first thing to say is to remember that, of course, um, we have a queen in the UK, uh, and it's a monarchy at the end of the day. The head of state is the monarch. Uh, and uh, the prime minister is a servant of the monarch. Uh, there is no automatic process or structure in place to uh, ensure that there is an automatic um, stand-in even for a sick uh, prime minister. Um, you know, it's up to the prime minister to nominate one, which is what's happened at the moment. Um, but that's, that's if the prime minister is not totally incapacitated and is still effectively functioning more or less as prime minister and able to, and that is the present situation in the UK. And the most recent news that I've seen anyway about the prime minister is that he is showing some signs of getting better, which is clearly very good news. Um, now, if he is incapacitated and is unable uh, to continue as prime minister, uh, then uh, the Queen uh, will appoint um, a, uh, a successor, a new Prime Minister. The rules on that have you know, changed a bit in, in, in recent years because at the end of the day, um, the Prime Minister has to command a majority in the House of Commons um, and therefore a majority of MPs. And the Queen would have to know that her choice for Prime Minister commanded a majority support of MPs in the House of Commons. Uh, 
but now, of course, the, uh, the leadership of the Conservative Party, which is by far the biggest party in Parliament, um, the membership actually chooses the leader. So there would have to be a process whereby there would be an appointment of Prime Minister, but that, in effect, uh, would become a, wouldn't be valid, in effect. Well, it would be up to the Queen, but they would have to be um, supported by the, um, by the membership. I think the chances are that, you know, in great likelihood, um, if somebody, if a, a PM was supported by the Queen and had the majority support of MBs, then almost certainly they would have the support in a vote of the membership as well. But it's just, you know, it's become a bit more complicated in, um, in recent years as they've tried to spread uh, the choice of party leaders away from MPs. You can have your own opinion about whether that's a good thing or not, but there we are. Well, I appreciate that, and it, I would just say, as one American, how impressed I was with the Queen giving a, a very rare national address last week, uh, hitting all the right high notes about the resilience of the U.K., which is uh, something I hope the whole world is hearing, because uh, we're going to need a lot of resilience to get through this. Um, following on from that question is uh, to, to ask you a bit more about your, your comment about exit strategies for various countries. The UK already has one. It's called Brexit. And my question is, uh, you, you said, uh, basically, I, I was listening as carefully as I could, that countries are saying this, but whether it actually happens is clear. Am I hearing you correctly that in the short term, other than Brexit, and I'd like to ask how Brexit will proceed at this moment of, of uh, uh, not just challenge from COVID-19, but, but uh, Boris Johnson's illness. Uh, how will that proceed? But how realistic in the short term, the short term maybe meaning the next year or two, are, uh, is it that a country or more than one will exit from the EU? Well, remember that the country or the UK has already exited from the EU. Brexit happened right. on the 30th right. of January. Okay. Uh, so the issue now is the transition period. The transition period uh, is um, due in law to finish um, at the end of this year, on the 31st of December. And the government, up until the outbreak, really, of the crisis, was absolutely committed to uh, you know, uh, ending the transition period um, and the obligations that go with it um, at the end of this year. And at the moment, in as much as the government has said anything about this, that remains uh, the position. But there's a you know, almost every day there's an increasing expectation, even amongst committed Brexiteers, uh, that almost certainly the transition period will have to be extended because it just simply won't, won't be possible to conduct negotiations in current conditions, particularly when, of course, we don't even know when the lockdowns and all the rest of it are going to end. Uh, so there must, I mean, nothing's definite yet, but there must be a very high uh, probability uh, that the, there will be a transition uh, period. I mean, apart from anything else, and I know this just from talking around, that uh, the negotiating teams and the people just aren't available. They're all they're all committed across Whitehall uh, to working on um, on the virus um, and the and the crisis. Um, so that's uh, it is. But you know, be clear: Brexit has happened um, all through. I've talked about the UK as being separate from the EU. Right. What about other countries in the EU? How realistic is it that they would 
uh, announce and try to follow through with an exit strategy in the next year or two? From the crisis? From, from, from the EU, based oh. on uh, the fact that they have different approaches to the crisis, uh, growing differences in their leadership, as you've pointed out, especially north-south, but also uh, let's compare Hungary to uh, Holland or whatever. Uh, what, yeah. what are the chances that country A, B, and C, and which are they, announces very soon that they're going to have their own exit? Well, um, okay, um, I'll shoot from the hip here, and I think there's a very low chance of any individual country in the mm, near future uh, taking such a decision, which would be hugely um, impactful for them if they did. And the Brexit analogy uh, is not exactly encouraging uh, when it comes to complicated procedures and so on, which even the UK has found difficult to manage. So Hungary, of course, is out on a limb. There's little doubt about that. To some extent, Poland, too. Um, uh, but the reaction from Brussels to Hungarian government behavior has been actually pretty limited and restrained. They're trying to avoid a confrontation. Um, now, in Italy, as I've tried to say, there's been a striking amount of really hostile uh, yeah. commentary um, um, across the political spectrum, including from quite a number of people. I could, if I had more time, I could give you more quotes, um, who up until now have been committed uh, Europeans. Um, and that is definitely a worry um, into the longer term. Um, it's really quite, you know, it's made quite an impression on me as I've been reading about it. Um, uh, and, of course, Matteo Salvini is fundamentally anti-European, anti-EU anyway. Uh, and he is a major political figure. That's true. Even he is careful about actually saying seriously, we're leaving. Well, that may begin to change now if he judges public opinion. But Italy is one of the six founding members of the EU from 1957. It's entire economy and structure um, has grown up and developed within that context as the EU has developed. And it would be enormously impactful and risky for them uh, to pull, pull back, and they're not in a very strong position in any case. So I'd take some convincing about that. And this goes back to my comment, Jane, that we need to be careful. And in these big crises, we think, gosh, you know, the moment of truth has come for the EU, and then somehow you find it doesn't and it hasn't. So how many people expected Greece to go 10 years ago, right. and they haven't? Well, let's pick up there. I have just a few more questions, so Nora, get the other questions ready. Uh, let's pick up there. During that crisis, I recall, maybe I have my years wrong, and since the leadership of the EU has not come from the, I'll call it the EU staff. It's come from a few country leaders, notably Angela Merkel, who everybody knows has announced that she will not stand again for election and has suffered a series of setbacks in her own government. She's still in place as chancellor, but her powers diminished. The alternative to her, so I understand at the moment anyway, is Emmanuel Macron, who uh, is a, a a strong leader and has tried to make major changes in France, but he's not particularly popular. Uh, is there, you know, who is there out there uh, among the either heads of state or uh, senior figures in the 
EU uh, hierarchy, and I'm not talking about Christine Lagarde. That's going to be my next question. Who is there in the, you know, uh, uh, is it uh, uh, the new president of the EU or anybody else there who could uh, exert the kind of uh, moral and actual leadership that Merkel did? Well, I think the simple answer is that uh, there isn't. Um, I mean, uh, Chancellor Merkel um, has been an exception um, in that in art, um, and she's had the ability to appeal and be reassuring to a range of countries uh, beyond uh, beyond Germany. Um, and, you know, obviously for all sorts of reasons, uh, some of which are obvious, um, the migration crisis and so on, uh, but just weakening of her position in Germany and 15 years is a long time to be in power. And two or three years is quite a long time to give your notice as well as you're a politician. That doesn't happen in my country. Um, uh, I, there isn't uh, an obvious replacement as an individual leader. It's very difficult anyway uh, to be uh, an individual leader of the European Union um, because it's not a nation state and it's not a federal state. It's not the United States of Europe. Um, it doesn't, and that's the whole point, really, that you know, people find sometimes hard to understand. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think it's important not to underestimate uh, President Macron. He's very um, determined, uh, very intelligent, uh, and um, has so far had you know, many uh, political successes as well as challenges. And he is still strongly positioned in France, although everybody likes to complain about him, but that's France. Um, uh, but his ability to appeal, I mean, his appeal outside France, of course, is, is, is clear. It's very limited. Um, the Commission itself, one of the problems of the Union, has been that the Commission doesn't really, is not really equipped to provide that kind of uh, what we would normally call of inspirational national leadership. Um, uh, the president, the new president, Ursula von der Leyen. I mean, she, you know, she has spoken very well and has come to some pretty good positions, um, but it's hard to see her quite as you're describing. So you know, I've got an open mind on that. I think it's one of the challenges for the EU structure, actually. Well, I, I totally agree. My second to last question, I telegraphed this, is about our dear friend uh, Christine Lagarde, who is now uh, the head of the European Central Bank, She's been there since last fall. She will receive one of the uh, Center Awards at our gala, uh, currently scheduled for June, but we, uh, and we hope to keep that date, but circumstances may require us to move it. At any yes. rate, she uh, did uh, manage to get through a major package, uh, I think of close to a trillion dollars a while back, and she's trying to push another one. Your comments about a corona bond were pretty negative. Uh, how... How much chance does she have to uh, uh, create momentum to uh, help, uh, obviously, the EU survive? And, uh, you know, how powerful is her personal position inside the EU? Well, it's powerful, but the intensity of the argument uh, and disagreements that are now taking place is such and so political uh, that I hesitate to think that the, uh, the head of the bank can actually somehow or another break through it. 
um, it's going to have to be done. It's a very political issue. And, of course, this is what the big argument um, in the, with the finance ministers and then uh, with the um, heads of government and state has been in the last few days and, uh, and, and weeks um, uh, around, as I was saying, the mutualization of debt and the resistance, the fundamental resistance to that in uh, many parts of Northern Europe. Uh, you know, it's whether a compromise can be found. I mean, the compromise they're trying to find um, uh, does involve, you know, uh, a debt uh, and, and a bond, it, or a, a big sort of lending issue and a program of support. But of course, conditions are attached. And the fundamental condition is um, a limitation, um, 2% of the GDP, and also uh, an eventual longer-term commitment to economic reform, policy reform, and that is particularly directed at Italy. And, of course, that's where the argument's been, particularly between Italy and the, ne and the Netherlands, with some pretty sort of harsh comments from the uh, Dutch Minister of Finance, which has caused great resentment. Uh, I, I think the ECB is going to find it difficult. On the other hand, there is definitely a pickup of opinion, even amongst former opponents of the Eurobond, um, you're saying, well, the crisis is now so severe and the threat to EU unity of spirit is so great that we're going to have to do something. I honestly find it difficult to predict uh, beyond that statement of, you know, this is all very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, final question, just briefly, I know everyone wants to ask questions, is about what else is going on. You mentioned that uh, the deterioration of countries in the Sahel region of of North Africa and uh, probably the inadequate statistics about what's really going on in Yemen and the Middle East and not so on and so forth uh, could lead, in addition to the sad fact that many people get sick and die of COVID, also to an increase in terrorism. And we all know that uh, there still are channels for terrorists to get into Europe um, uh, in spite of uh, less porous borders and so forth. So. While this is going on and while most of the brain cells are focused on this, um, should we anticipate more terror attacks like the one in France a few days ago by someone who uh, clearly I'm not sure exactly what his affiliation was, but uh, was found praying uh, on the sidewalk after he uh, attacked uh, five people, I think killing several of them with a knife uh, in, a, in an yeah. area near Lyon. That's right, in the southeast, yeah. Well, um, uh, this is um, uh, that attack, um, in a way, was an example of the sort of kind of threat which um, uh, exists and which has been increasingly prominent in uh, recent years. Uh, the attack comes from somebody uh, with, from you know, a background maybe, or from uh, a country uh, or region or um, a, a grouping which is naturally inclined to be sympathetic or vulnerable to indoctrination, um, not necessarily a member of a group. I don't think it's clear yet um, about that um, particular attack. Maybe um, uh, individually radicalized um, and um, almost, therefore, almost impossible or very, very difficult for the security services. And I would just take the chance here to say that the security services in France are excellent, extremely well-informed, extremely professional. Um, but e even for them, 
you just can't spot everything. And self-radicalization is, makes it especially difficult to spot and anticipate. Um, and I, I think without doubt, um, a big issue and a big potential threat is that the chaos, if you like, and disorder, which is coming huffle not just in, in Europe, uh, but you know, my my big point really was that the, if you like, the black swan or the black elephant here, is the obvious one of um, of uh, radicalization and disorder um, spreading um, across North Africa um, and various parts in the Levant and so on, um, uh, and the Gulf. Um, I mean, conditions could be highly amenable to um, the kind of um, resurgence of um, Islamic State, which, who have never gone away anyway, right. um, not just in Syria and Iraq. And, of course, that also goes back to what I was saying about the Sahel uh, and, of course, the continuing importance of the disorder in Libya and so on. So I, I am concerned. It's natural from my background, but I am concerned uh, that we're not paying proper attention to that. Um, politically, or maybe at the sort of top government level, or I'm quite sure that the um, the services are paying very close attention to it. Good. Good to hear. 